Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Edition. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington and host of this podcast. When a country emerges from a closely fought and polarizing election, citizens often look around and think, how am I supposed to live in the same country as the rest of these people? This feeling is often compounded when members of the previous government have been credibly accused of criminal and corrupt actions from their time in office or even before that. How then does a country transition to new leadership and reconcile with the legacy of acrimony and lawlessness from the past? Does the new boss decide to go after the old boss or do they decide to forgive and forget? These are of course questions that many Americans are now asking themselves after the 2020 elections, when they say Republicans rejected democracy, rejected science, and supported a leader with authoritarian instincts and behaviors? Can Republicans live with Democrats when they don't believe Donald Trump lost the election and aren't willing to accept the reality of a Biden-Harris win? And if self-pardons are potentially on the horizon in the waning days of the Trump administration, does that mean the American president is, in fact, always above the law? If indictments or investigations are possible once he leaves office, what will become of Trump? his family and his associates once they no longer enjoy the protections he affords them? How should a new Biden administration pursue truth and justice and what does that mean? Are Americans actually ready for reconciliation? These are issues not unique to the United States. In fact, many countries around the world frequently face questions of truth, justice, and reconciliation in moments of political transition. As my guest today, I wanted to invite a global expert in transitional justice and to discuss its role in democracy. I'm delighted to be joined by Gabrielle Lynch. Gabby is a professor of comparative politics at the University of Warwick in the UK and the vice president for research of the British Institute in Eastern Africa. Gabby specializes in researching emerging democracies, primarily in Africa, including topics such as ethnic polarization, intercommunal violence and elections. Today, I wanted to have her on to talk about a specific area of her expertise, reconciliation and transitional justice mechanisms which she explores in her recent book, Performances of Injustices, The Politics of Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation in Kenya. I should note for full transparency that Gabby and I have known each other for many years, and I was fortunate enough to contribute two chapters to recently published books edited by her. The first, co-edited with Nick Cheeseman and Karuti Kayinga, is the Oxford Handbook of Kenyan Politics. And the second, co-edited with Peter Von Depp, is the Rutledge Handbook of Democratization in Africa. She has also just published a forthcoming book with Nick Cheeseman and Justin Willis titled The Moral Economy of Elections in Africa, Democracy, Voting and Virtue, which will be out in print in early 2021, became the online version was published uh, this week. So let me welcome Professor Gabrielle Lynch to the podcast. Hi, Gabby. Hi, James. So before we get to your work on truth and reconciliation in Africa and how it might apply to the US, let's start with the basics. Gabby, what is transitional justice, if we talk about a big picture, and what are specific transitional justice mechanisms that are often pursued? So in brief, um, transitional justice is an effort to either bring about or consolidate a transition from authoritarianism to democracy or conflict uh, to peace through the use of a variety of judicial or quasi-judicial mechanisms. Um, so things like truth commissions, criminal proceedings, lustration, reparations, uh, and public apologies. And what, what, so what are the differences then between kind of 
existing legal structures or prosecutions versus the need to create these new institutions and these transitional moments? I mean, why not just leave things to whatever laws the country already has or whatever courts are already there and just kind of prosecute under the old system? Why, why the need for something new? So I think the reason is twofold. One is that you are trying to address the past to move on to a new future. So you want these mechanisms to do something a little bit different to kind of judicial mechanisms in normal times. Uh, so, you know, if you're thinking about normal criminal proceedings, it's just about kind of convicting somebody for a wrong that they have done. Whereas if you're convicting somebody through a transitional justice mechanism, you're both trying to punish them for the wrongdoing, but also trying to kind of perform a change to a new kind of political system. So that's one of the reasons. The other is that, you know, often in these situations, the mechanisms that are already in place are not trusted, trusted and don't enjoy much credibility because of the situation that you're emerging from. Uh, so often a new mechanism is required to be seen as something that's different uh, to the mechanisms that are already in place. So what are some examples? In terms of the mechanisms used? Yeah. Um, so kind of one of the classics would be the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa uh, that was used at the end of apartheid. Um, so coming out of um, apartheid South Africa, moving to majority um, government, uh, the ANC coming into power, there was a feeling that actually, you know, prosecuting everybody for past wrongs under kind of existing laws would be quite divisive. Uh, and that instead it was useful to have a mechanism that would better contribute to kind of truth and justice and reconciliation through a, a truth-telling process. Um, so you had a truth commission established whereby for full disclosure of political wrongs, um, people were given amnesty. And the idea was that although they were given amnesty and weren't being prosecuted, that was encouraging them to tell the truth about what happened so that there could be kind of acknowledgement of the past wrongs and a kind of better historical account of the apartheid era. And this, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, this was kind of astounding. Um, if you think about the fact that when apartheid was dismantled, when the apartheid regime was dismantled and then there's sort of democratic inclusive governance and, and blacks are allowed to finally participate, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was about understanding the truth of what the prior regime had done. I mean, political actors, not just, you know, some criminal on the street. It was actually like, this is what our, our, our South African government did before we had a democracy sort of airing what that truth is. And that to me just seems very unprecedented and astounding because we typically don't think of, you know, an entire regime being sort of put before a body politic and criticized in its own country. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting mechanism. Um, I think what's, I mean, one of the kind of particularly interesting things about the Truth Commission in South Africa is that it looked at kind of all politically motivated wrongs, whether they were committed by the apartheid regime 
or by those fighting the apartheid regime. Um, so trying to kind of recognize that wrongs were done on both sides, although there was a recognition that you know, wrongs on one side may have been more justifiable given that they were committed in, in an effort to fight an unjust, unjust regime. Um, but it's also faced heavy criticism because it kind of just focused on bodily integrity rights. Um, so, you know, murders, um, torture, and not on socioeconomic crimes. So not on, you know, the displacements that occurred as part of apartheid, uh, not on kind of differential opportunities when it came to schooling or employment. So yeah, very kind of mixed views uh, of the TRC. One of the things that's really interesting to me is this truth element. And you, and you mentioned it a little bit before, but to me, what's so astounding is that a lot of these processes is literally about just like creating a historical record, either because maybe crimes from the past, there is no record of it, or that record is somehow kept a secret or the record has been somehow biased, you know, either in our perception of it or, or how it's developed over time. And, and one of the things is just sort of like getting the record straight. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about, uh, you know, I just think that would be hard to participate in and very hard to listen to, um, even if it were people correcting the record against things they had done to me or my family or my region or my ethnic group. But I also see it as kind of a necessary healing process. So can, I, I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about that, the importance of just that truth aspect and getting that historical record out there. I think it's, I mean, it's really complicated because it's, it depends a lot on the context. Um, so as you say, in some contexts, the wrongs that a regime committed were very hidden from view, uh, were denied, lied about. And when they're brought to the surface, it encourages a kind of kind of sense of public acknowledgement of, oh, actually those things were happening. Those kinds of activities aren't acceptable. It is good that that kind of regime has finished and we're into a new regime. But history and context are usually more complicated than that. Um, so it's not just about telling that truth, but getting people to buy into it and accept that account of it. Um, so as you were talking about earlier with the American election, I mean, what, what would be the truth of the election in terms of the problems with it? Is it problems to do with the kinds of campaigns that were run um, or is the problem the way that, you know, claims that it was stolen or there was electoral manipulation? Um, and then there's also questions about how far back you go, like what are the relevant truths? Are the relevant truths about that process or has the problematic process, is that caused by or is it just a symptom of some deeper rooted, longer standing problems? And are those the truths that you need to kind of uncover? Yes, I just think it, it kind of differs massively between contexts. I think sometimes you can have something, you know, like apartheid South Africa, where the apartheid government denied the kinds of torture and black ops that they participated in. And therefore, when those were brought to the surface, people had to confront the fact that bad things were, had been done and that 
injustices have been committed. Um, but yeah, history is not usually so simple in terms of the kind of good guys and the bad guys. So how one, one of the interesting parts of this is the confessional aspect. Uh, you were talking about how there was amnesty given to people who were participating in this process in South Africa, but just more generally, how, how do these mechanisms get people who were potentially involved in very bad things to get out there and confess it? Um, often with great difficulty and often not very successfully. Um, so I think the South African case is quite unusual in the extent to which people did confess and did talk about the wrongdoings that they were involved in. And I think this is partly to do with the a, a sense that um, prosecutions were likely if people didn't apply for amnesty. But then when people started talking, they started implicating other people <laughs> and therefore they wanted to come forward and claim amnesty so as to protect themselves. Because again, it looked like prosecutions were a real possibility. I mean, contrast that with Kenya, where a place where I've done a lot of my research, and there weren't the same motivations for people to tell the truth. Um, there hadn't been a transition. Prosecutions didn't look likely. Um, and in, that, in those sort of situations, what you often get is kind of either people refusing to talk or if they do talk, denying uh, any involvement either because they can't remember or it wasn't them or what happened wasn't actually a wrongdoing and it was justified because they were a state security officer and you know, there was violence that needed to be controlled, et cetera, et cetera. Well, yeah, let's talk about your work in Kenya, which is featured brilliantly in your book, Performances of Injustices, The Politics of Truth, Justice and Reconciliation in Kenya. Um, Gabby, walk us through what the injustices have been in Kenya and then what Kenya's recent experience was with transitional justice. So the transitional justice mechanisms in Kenya, um, most notably a truth commission and international criminal proceedings were introduced following the post-election violence of 2007-8 uh, when a disputed election was followed by kind of unprecedented violence in which over a thousand people were killed but almost 700,000 people were displaced. Um, and it was in the wake of that violence that these mechanisms were introduced, but significantly they were informed by a sense that the post-election violence was triggered by a disputed election, but fueled by much deeper rooted problems. So the injustices that the Truth Commission looked at were not just those that occurred during the post-election violence, but those that occurred from independence, from British colonial rule in the 1960s through to the end um, of the post-election violence in February 2008, and included a wide range of injustices. So not just um, the kind of classic injustices that transitional justice mechanisms focus on, um, namely kind of torture, murder, um, political detention, massacres, etc., cetera, um, but also on 
perceptions of economic marginalization, grand corruption, ethnic clashes, um, and so on and so forth. So there, yeah, really was looking at a very wide range of both um, political and economic injustices that occurred over a 50 year period. So you were like, you sort of have written the ethnography of truth commissions because you were really there watching this play out in Kenya a few years ago. Can you kind of just talk us through what that was like as an observer? I mean, both as kind of an academic, but also just as a person, what it was like for you to go to these different meetings of the truth commission in Kenya? Yeah, so I spent probably about seven months following the truth commission around Kenya, attending its hearings in different parts of the country. So the Truth Commission in Kenya um, carried out investigations um, and research, but they also held public hearings um, around the country where they um, invited both community representatives, but also victims of various injustices to come and tell their story and their experiences um, and to offer recommendations about ways forward. Um, they also held adversely mentioned persons hearings. Um, so the Truth Commission in Kenya couldn't offer the kind of amnesty that the South African Truth Commission could offer. So instead of having amnesty hearings, they had these hearings for those who'd been, well, adversely mentioned um, in people's statements or through the investigations and research that the commission conducted. And the hearings were were really powerful actually kind of sitting through not just days but weeks and months of people from across the country coming forward and talking about what they had been through and one of the common themes was the way with ways in which those past experiences continue to affect people's present lives um either because you know, they'd lost a breadwinner in the family and so continued to struggle to send children to family, to send children to, to school, uh, or because they had, you know, been detained and tortured, but after that labelled a dissident and hadn't been able to get a job and had, you know, suffered economically for the rest of their lives or continued to live with the scars of an injury. So it was very powerful, often very depressing. Um, I think one of the, the really depressing things though, was the extent, was the, was the limited engagement um, by the majority of Kenyans with the process. So people, you know, about 40,000 people gave statements to the commission and people turned up to tell their stories in each of the locations that the Truth Commission traveled to. Um, but the commission was very poorly covered by the local media, let alone the international media. So people didn't really hear about the stories that were told in one area in other parts um, of the country. Um, and yeah, during the adversely mentioned persons hearings, nobody came forward to admit any personal wrongdoing. The, the only report of any admission of guilt um, was at an in-camera hearing. So that was you know, not, not a public hearing. Can I, so let me um, play devil's advocate for a moment and have you respond to, I think what could be perhaps 
I, this critique has been made, but let me make it in a more honest way, which is, you know, what's the point of, you know, trying to not relitigate, but just like go back and have people re-experience this pain and come and kind of either confess to it or share their, uh, their experiences as victims, um, particularly if the process is not being taken as seriously as it should be, or, or if it does lead to people just snitching on each other, or it actually does lead to serious prosecutions. I mean, is, is this perhaps a, a just opening a painful wound that a country just doesn't really heal? So you're just sort of having, you're just reminding yourself that you have these, this gaping wound and do people, I mean, is there an alternative world where it's just better for people to try to move on and not really deal with this in this painful way? I mean, I think it depends sometimes on the individual and sometimes on the kind of injustice in question. Um, but in the Kenyan context, it was quite clear from the way in which people spoke that this was already an open wound. Um, this wasn't something that, you know, they had forgotten about and were now remembering. It was very clear that the injustices that they had suffered continued to affect their day-to-day -day life. And it was clear that people, you know, the majority of people were happy and welcomed an opportunity to speak about this in public and for people to for, for people to listen and hear. I think the problem comes in when people speak and they're heard, but nothing happens. So I think it, you know, it depends on the context that you're in and what is likely to come out of these processes. Um, there's also then a question of expectations. I think often these processes are overloaded with really unrealistic expectations that they're gonna uh, you know, establish the truth about everything, that they are going to achieve justice for all past wrongs, and they are gonna achieve reconciliation both between individuals and communities and at the national level. And you know, often these are processes that last for a couple of years. There's no way <laughs> that they can achieve all of those things, um, but they might be able to contribute to them um, by, Bringing, you know, by bringing some things out into the open, gaining some acknowledgement of past wrongs, helping to perhaps inform some policy changes and reforms. Um, so yeah, I think if you keep your expectations a little bit lower, uh, then they can be useful. So what came out of the Truth Commission process in Kenya? So I think, you know, a lot of energy was put in having the hearings um, as public events. And that in and of itself is meant to kind of, you know, cultivate public debate and get a, a kind of recognition that there were wrongs um, committed and that there should be a shift to a new political dispensation. Unfortunately, the audiences were so small um, that the kind of point of having the hearings in public were, were lost really. Um, but that doesn't mean that it was kind of a waste of time. Uh, the commission still, you know, gathered information through these hearings, did a lot of research, um, carried out its own investigations and published a very lengthy four volume report, which provides probably the kind of best overview of kind of past injustices that have happened in Kenya and a whole raft of recommendations. And whilst those recommendations have so far been largely ignored, 
the, that record is still there um, and people are lobbying around it and trying to get various recommendations implemented. So yeah, the impact so far has been limited, but you know, whilst the final report was submitted in 2013, which might seem like quite a long time ago, it's not that long ago. Um, and it is still possible that that record and that those recommendations may have more of an impact at some point in the future, or maybe I'm being too optimistic. So how are these um, local transitional justice mechanisms different than like what the international community does with things like the International Criminal Court or um, prosecution of war crimes done by the international community? I mean, often, often there's kind of overlap of these domestic and international processes. Often there's kind of international support for the domestic mechanisms. Um, but then there are often other international um, mechanisms and proceedings. And he said one of those is the International Criminal Court, uh, which was set up uh, to try and punish uh, those most responsible for war crimes and crimes against humanity in contexts where states were unable or unwilling to do that. So that's a very specific focus on criminal prosecutions, which can also happen locally. You could have um, you know, transitional justice mechanism in the form of um, a special tribunal uh, at the national level. And is there a sense that, you know, all things equal, it's better for the international community to try to exert a lot of pressure on these things and the international community is more successful? Or is it better to kind of let countries take their own path and decide what's best for them? You know, assuming the murderers aren't still in state house running the government. <laughs> so I think, I mean, nobody likes feeling like they're being told what to do by outsiders. So I think if you're really trying to display a transition to a new dispensation and to get public buy-in to that, if it looks like something that's just pushed by the outside, then it's not necessarily gonna be very helpful. But that doesn't mean that there can't be a role for the international community, either in an advisory capacity or in a funding capacity or supporting capacity, or in a capacity of being able to do something that would be very difficult locally because um, there aren't the institutions in place or there isn't the political will. Um, so if we think about something like the International Criminal Court, and this is set up to try those where states are unable or unwilling, but there's a lot of evidence that actually when they step in to situations and try to bring people to justice, they do enjoy widespread popular support locally in, in domestic settings because people often want people brought to, to justice for past wrongs. One of the things that I think is interesting about the truth and justice process is the reconciliation bit because a lot, these, a lot of these are always happening kind of in the context of a very polarized society, whether it's whites and blacks in South Africa, different ethnic groups in Kenya, I think Americans now have a deep sense of polarization in their own country, not to say that it's exactly the same as South Africa, of course it's not, but um, 
And <clears throat> I'm wondering if you could talk about the degree to which you think these, these mechanisms are successful at you know, bringing people together to really try to start that healing and reconciliation process when politics has been so polarizing. Um, and is that actually true or does this just kind of cause both sides to batten down the hatches and become even more divisive or polarized once they, they go through these processes and hear these, you know, these allegations made or, or, or setting the record straight? I mean, I think transitional justice mechanisms that are unsuccessful or poorly managed uh, or biased or politicized um, can obviously backfire and, you know, just foster a greater sense of injustice um, and division. Um, but I think if done well, they can, as I said, they can, I don't think they can achieve reconciliation, but I think they can contribute to it. I think it's unhelpful to think of reconciliation as something that can easily be achieved in a short window of time. I think reconciliation is better thought of as an ongoing process. Um, and especially if you're emerging from a history of you know, long-standing injustice, then you know, you're not, you're gonna need quite substantial socioeconomic reforms, for example, to really bring about a change and a full transition. Um, I think it also depends what you mean by reconciliation. Um, so often, I mean, reconciliation is, you know, like peace. You can't really be against it. Everybody, <laughs> everybody, everybody wants it, you know. But it's, it can be very easily politicized um, and used. So quite often reconciliation is asserted as something that should be achieved or has been achieved and that anybody who stands up or criticizes the status quo is, are being kind of divisive and pro-chaos um, and violence, which I think is very unhelpful understanding of, of reconciliation. So I think when it's yeah, politicized in this way, that's something that kind of has been achieved and must be protected. Um, I think it can be quite detrimental and actually kind of undermine democracy, Plato's authoritarianism I think it's more useful to think of it as a relationship of trust where you kind of respect others and you expect others to respect you and your right to participate and benefit from uh, the political system. Does it require forgiveness? I think it depends how you understand it. I think not necessarily. Um, and not necessarily by everybody. Um, I think you can move to a situation where you, you have trust and confidence that other people, including your kind of enemies, will respect your right to exist and will respect your right to participate in the political system and to benefit from the socioeconomic and political system without necessarily forgiving them for every wrong in the past. Gabby, I think that might be the crux of what the issue is in, in the United States right now. And so I'm wondering if, if you could comment on it, which is I think <clears throat> the, I think the, the disagreement between Democrats and Republicans, they have disagreements over policy. They obviously have disagreements over their candidates, but I think the feeling now is that they actually disagree about the country and the system they wanna live in. Now that may not be true, but that is how it's being 
characterized, where Democrats view Republicans as being fundamentally anti-system, like the democratic system. And um, Republicans view Democrats as sort of a, a different version of that. And so I can understand a scenario where Democrats and Republicans can shop at a grocery store and respect each other's right to shop at the grocery store and vote and all the rest of it. But if we take this axis of difference seriously, how can they actually live in the same country where they want different things out of what the political system is, how it's designed and what it's meant to do? So I think it's unrealistic and probably a bad idea to expect to aim for everybody to get on in the sense that they'll agree to the same policies and all unite behind the same leaders and ideas because that's not how politics work. I mean, people have different interests and they have different values, they have different goals. So people are gonna to continue to disagree, but I don't think that's necessarily a problem. The problem is when people can't agree to the rules of the game and they don't, ex they don't trust others to play by them. And I think that's the kind of, if you, can, if you can overcome that hurdle, I think you've got the kind of reconciliation that I'm speaking about rather than other ideas of reconciliation where it's often more kind of, you know, suddenly it's reconciliation as friendship and cohesion and which I think is, is, is naive in a political system. That's, that's, an, that's not gonna be an outcome you're gonna achieve. No, I agree with that. That's what you want to achieve because people are going to disagree and to ignore that fact means you have to kind of insist on cohesion and unity in a way that silence dissenting voices. Mm -hmm. What do you do about prosecutions? Um, I know for, with Kenya, after the post-election violence in 2008, you know, you, in the Truth and in Justice Commission move forward, you had the issue of members of the previous regime potentially being prosecuted, members of the sitting government potentially being prosecuted, as well as with the International Criminal Court proceedings, as well as um, potential future leaders in Kenya, um, very powerful political actors potentially facing prosecution. And this is something that, you know, the United States is thinking about if there's, if there's potential indictments. Uh, of course, we don't know that yet. Um, until until the, the Trump administration or members of it are, are indicted, innocent until proven guilty, those indictments haven't come down yet and we're not sure. But I think it's a, it's a question that a lot of countries actually frequently face. Yeah, so as you'll know, James, that process didn't work out so well in Kenya. Um, <laughs> so those who were um, indicted and faced charges with crimes against humanity, um, those cases later collapsed. Um, with the prosecution arguing that they collapsed not because there was no evidence or no wrongdoings that had occurred, but because of intimidation and harassment and bribery of witnesses. Um, so in Kenya, that process kind of was another example of kind of performance of injustice. Um, so for those who believed in... Um, the indictee's innocence, the fact that they had, had had to go through this trial um, and had to be kind of hauled off to a foreign court was an example of injustice and of a, of a foreign court interfering 
uh, without fully understanding the facts or intentionally trying to interfere in the political system. For those who do believe that uh, the indictees were guilty, um, this is a performance of injustice because they were able to get off by intimidating, bribing, killing witnesses. So across the board, uh, this doesn't seem like an example of, of justice uh, because of how the legal proceedings played out. But I don't think, you know, that's not inevitable. <laughs> um, and I think legal proceedings can play a more positive role. And here I think, you know, and this is the difference between kind of legal or criminal proceedings in a normal time when it's just about convicting people for wrongdoing and during a moment of transitional justice where it's trying to kind of bring attention to certain types of wrongs that are unacceptable and a shift to a new dispensation where those kinds of acts will no longer be acceptable. So for example, you know, some people might want to argue that in this, you know, that then there could be an argument for trying to you know, bring attention to interference in elections uh, by outside powers or the misuse of power or intentional lies and fake news um, as things that could be reasonably prosecuted against as an example of things that had happened in the past that the new political dispensation wanted to show weren't acceptable, weren't going to be allowed, that there was a new kind of political system in place. Um, but that obviously then brings up the questions about whether people would accept that interpretation um, and see this as justice or whether some people might see this as a further injustice. Well, I think to the issue that the bizarre kind of conversation around this in the United States, at least, is that when it comes to the question of, let's just say a president, should are they above the law or not? The answer is always a political answer. It's not really ever a legal answer. Like people don't ever make the, the positive legal case or the negative legal. I mean, if there's no indictments or there, there hasn't been a crime committed, then the, that case has been made. But there's never kind of the positive legal case made, which is if somebody commits a crime, the state is interested in prosecuting it for the reasons that if anybody does it. But it's like once you're at this level of political leadership, the presidency in the U.S., you actually may be above the law simply because the decision whether or not you should be held accountable legally is a political question, not a legal question. And so, you know, Gerald Ford pardons Nixon for all of the crimes committed in Nixon's White House. And, and Americans kind of view that as that was the right political decision. Um, and now the, the question about Trump is, is, is it going to be politically smart for the Biden administration to try to, you know, and, and the Biden administration would only have some um, oversight of this. There's other state and local stuff that he might be subject to. But it's just interesting to me that it's always a political, that that legal question is always decided politically as opposed to legally. Yes. Um, and I think even when it's, even when it's brought before the courts, the courts are obviously not immune to politics and to recognizing how their proceedings and any decisions would be would be viewed. 
how then should voters, I mean, I, the part, it's just a, to me, it always goes back to the moral hazard thing, you know? Okay. So maybe short term, it was strategic and smart and, and good for reconciliation for Ford to pardon um, a Nixon. And maybe in Kenya for the individuals who were potentially going to you know, be indicted at the ICC, it was better to just kind of try to move forward short term. That's the thinking. But the problem is you establish this moral hazard over time where you literally are telling future generations if you want to do these things, these people were above the law. There's no reason to believe that you shouldn't think that you're going to be above the law. And so I always think of it as being very myopic, not to take a broader, more historical approach to thinking about these issues. But then nobody wants to hear that argument, right? They want to know what's good for today. They want to know what's going to get them through to, you know, whatever the next thing is that they're trying to do. Yeah. And then you place that in a, in a global context um, where you may not just get away with things locally, but also on the international um, level by being one of the more important players. That's true, that's true. So let me, I wanna end Gabby with have you kind of talking about what you see as the role for transitional justice in the future of democracy in the 21st century, either thinking about those countries that have gone through this process and, and what will vest from those processes in the future, or also just kind of where you see the future of these types of mechanisms going. So I think, you know, so far, transitional justice proponents have often responded to criticisms of them, their efforts and the mechanisms by kind of introducing increasingly complicated, increasingly ambitious um, processes. And I think actually it's good to step back and think more carefully about what we can realistically expect these mechanisms to achieve um, and to be a little bit less ambitious and to recognize that they can go wrong. They can undermine um, the goals that they're hoping to achieve. They can have unintended consequences, um, but that they can also make a contribution to Know, truth, justice, and reconciliation, but they're never going to be able to achieve it in and of themselves. And we should see those efforts to be longer running efforts that are going to require more substantive socioeconomic and political reform. Um, I think also more attention needs to be given to the questions of what are the key parts of the past that people are trying to address? You know, for example, in the States at the moment, is the issue the election or is the issue deeper rooted issues of class, race, you know, kind of need for security sector reform, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then what you want the kind of new present to look like, what are the kind of the new state that you're trying to enact um, and the kind of imagined future, what are, what's the kind of common good that you're working for. Gabby, I think that's a great point because I think I think everybody agrees that one of the things that the Trump, Trump's time in office has done is really lay bare a lot of very fundamental primordial issues in the United States that, you know, as an, exactly what you said, class, race especially, um, region and, and gender and all these things. And, you know, if you look at the pain of that as being bad, okay, but also if you say, okay, well, but this is the opportunity to finally address these things, maybe it's a good thing. 
um, regardless of where you fall on what policy you would wanna pursue. And I think the anxiety right now is let's not forget that. Like, let's actually just keep, let's keep that wound open a little bit and see what we can do to work on it. But it's very hard. You have COVID, you have uh, an economic crisis, you have a new administration coming in that has a lot of things that it has to worry about and, and, and frankly doesn't probably want to or have the bandwidth to address some of these problems. And so I think a lot of people are actually, I think a lot of people in a, in a certain way, this is gonna be weird to say, had Trump been reelected, it would have been impossible to avoid it. And there's now actually a window to potentially avoid some of this going forward, at least in the short term. Yeah, but I, you know, and to reiterate the point, I think I agree with you. And I think, you know, people would be doomed to fail if they would expect a transitional justice mechanism to deal with the issues of race and class and gender and region in the States. As I said, you could expect those kinds of mechanisms to make a contribution to reforms and to a better understanding of the past and a better understanding of what needs to be done, but they are never going to achieve, you know, they're never going to be able to address um, and overcome those kinds of issues and not themselves. Well, we can at least hope and, and try to work for it. So uh, Gabby Lynch, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, James. Really nice to chat to you. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.